that's great. I'm just going to move this just for a second because I need to tell you a story. My name's Donna. Welcome to those of you who are watching online and those of you here in the room. Now, I need to tell you this because it really will help with the whole, whole sermon. A few years ago, I was out at Eagle Hawk for a members meeting, and I don't know if any of you have been to a members meeting, but they tend to run along a typical way. There's reports given and tabled, there's the documents that come out a couple of weeks ahead that you can read. Well, this particular members meeting was out at Eagle Hawk, and I was sitting there, and it was probably one of the first ones I'd been to, maybe I'd been to a couple, and so I kind of had this expectation of what would happen and how it would run. But after the financial report had been accepted, right on, uh, Sharon Gleason got up to answer some questions. Now, before she spoke, she did something. She got up. Now, excuse me, because I can't do what she did. I can see a giggle already. Somebody else knows what's coming. She got up. Now, this is our treasurer, who's an accountant, very lady of very high standing. And she got up and she did the floss. And I can't do it. It's that dance where your hips go one way and your legs go the other and you have to have a rhythm. Now, I've got no rhythm and no coordination, so I can't do it. But she did it and it was hilarious. The whole room just erupted with laughter. What was so funny about it was it was so unexpected. Nobody in that place was expecting our treasurer lovely lovely lady she's gorgeous now if you know her really well you might have expected it I didn't know her that well at that point and it was floored me I was very it was hilarious because it turned all my expectations all the stereotypes I've had I had of what a members meeting of what a fine upstanding treasurer should do turned it upside down and it was very very funny now I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we dive into the book of Jonah the book of Jonah is completely unexpected. If you've come across it before, most likely you've come across it as a children's story. Could I get that first slide up, please, Sue? I did a quick search on Kurong. Who can tell me what the common denominator is on all those book covers? The fish, the fish or the whale. Well, let me just wipe that off the table. We very nearly called this series. It's not about the fish. <laughs> Everything you were expecting to hear about the story of Jonah is probably not what you're going to hear over these next few weeks. Jonah is hilarious. Eighth century humour. Now, we, people haven't changed all that much in the last few thousand years. We still find irony, contrasts, reversals of stereotypes, and the unexpected really funny. The problem for us is that we're so far removed from the first audience that we don't know what they knew. We don't pick up on all the details, so we lose the humour and it becomes a dry members meeting, which we would never have, by the way. Never. So, if you're thinking it's all about the fish, wipe it. Let's start fresh and let's go with what we really find as we do a deep dive together. So, first of all, it's a very short book. We break it up into four chapters. It's just over 40-ish verses long. It's very concise. The skill of the storyteller is phenomenal. The way he crams so much into such a short story is really, really clever. Everything about the book is designed to distract you until you realise it's about you. Now think, if you've grown up like me with some Monty Python, it's the establishment poking fun at the establishment, pointing out all that's ridiculous. Jonah is the establishment, and everything about Jonah as the stereotype of God's covenant people is not what he was supposed to be. 
The contrasts are huge. The author sets up everything that happens to contrast one response to another response. We'll see this morning Jonah and the sailors. We'll see Jonah and God. We'll see so many contrasts between the character of God and people's response to it. We'll also see some irony. There's irony. If you thought the Bible didn't have any humor, this is really funny. And it's very, very unexpected. So we're going to have a look at some of those details that will give us some of the background so that we can laugh along too and hopefully hold up a mirror. It won't be that painful, I promise. So what we're going to do is read through chapter 1 up to verse 16. We won't get to the very last verse. We'll save that for next week. And then we're going to come back and have a look at the first few verses a bit more closely. And then don't panic. It won't go forever. We'll skip a few and then just talk about a couple more and do a bit more of an overview before we get to the end. Everyone ready? Great. If you have your Bible or a device with you, then please turn with me to Jonah chapter 1. I'm going to be reading from the NIV. If you haven't got something with you, it will be on the screen for you. So we're going to start in Jonah, chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, "'How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God!' Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you have pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. It's exciting so far, isn't it? Action-packed. Not a wasted word in there. Did anyone pick up on any of the contrasts? Not yet. What about the questions and how significant they were? Anyone pick up on those? Not yet. Well, let's dive back and have, now that we've got an overview of what's actually happening, let's dive back and have a look at verse 1. 
the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Now, if we were 8th century Israelites, this would have triggered a whole lot of thoughts for us. But us here in 2022, we often miss... Oh, it's not up. We often miss what's going on here. Now, Jonah, son of Amittai, gives us a clue as to his name. Jonah actually means son of faithfulness or linked to the idea of doves and peace. He was supposed to be a man of peace. That's the first clue. The second clue in verse 2 is that God gives him a call. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, this would be a normal way for a book of prophecy to start, except that this isn't a normal book of prophecy. Old Testament prophets and the minor prophets, normally what you would expect is the whole book would be the oracles of the word or the words of the prophets. Whatever God has told them would make up the book and it would be interspersed with bits of history or bits of what was happening, action around it. But this book is really different. It's not what you would expect. What it is, is the story of Jonah and his experience and tucked in there is the oracle from God, the message that he's been given here in verse 2. And all it is, is five Hebrew words. That's it. That's all he's told to say. We don't get chapter after chapter of God said this, thus saith the Lord. It's five words. And we don't get that till right at the end. So first off, the audience would have been thrown. This is not what they were expecting. It was very unexpected. Now, the other clue that we get here that we may not pick up on instantly is that this wasn't Jonah's first call from God. This wasn't the first message he was given. Now, we've called this series Unexpected, and today we've got the unexpected call. Why is this call for a prophet from, of God so unexpected. What is it about this one that's completely unexpected? Well, the first one gives us a whole lot of clues. If we jump back into 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, we find out that Jonah is sent to King Jeroboam II and he's given a message. Now, this message was expected. It lined up with Jonah's name. It lined up with their ideas of what God would say. It was totally expected. Jonah sent to King Jeroboam II to preach peace. He tells this king, you will enlarge your borders. You will reclaim all the land that you have lost. Prosperity will be with you. It's really good news. The problem is... This was a really evil king. Now, this map's helpful because it gives you an idea of where it was. So Israel at this point is split into the two kingdoms. We've got Israel at the top and Judah at the bottom. Now, Jeroboam II is king over Israel, the northern tribes. And Jonah's told to go to Samaria, the capital, and preach this lovely message to this king. The problem is the king is horrible. He's an evil, evil king. He's uh, Jeroboam the second. Jeroboam the first was from the tenth century, and he was the epitome of a bad king, leading the Israelites into idol worship and apostasy. Now, this king, we're told, Jeroboam the second, adds to those sins and doubles them. But Jonah's got this message: go and tell him you're going to be the most prosperous king. Israel's going to thrive. This is the best time period politically since Solomon. Jonah didn't object to that one, did he? Hey, let's go and tell an Israelite king who's doing the wrong thing. God's good. Life's going to be great. 
that fit with Jonah's idea of what a prophet from God would do. Speak to an Israelite king, words from an Israelite God, and tell them life's going to be great. Now, don't forget Jonah would have reaped a whole lot of benefits from this. Imagine being the guy that's going to come along and say, yeah, this is you know, awesome. You're going to be the richest you've ever been. You're going to be the most stable politically. Jeroboam II reigned for 41 years. That was the longest reign in this section of Israel's history. Life was really good for them in one way. In the other way, they were very far from God. They got further and further away from God until God had to come in and do something about it. Amos reverses this prophecy, just that he's the next prophet in the line. But that was the expected call. This call, go to Nineveh and preach against it, is unexpected. But you'd think that Jonah would be really happy about this one too. He's going to go to Israel's enemies and tell them, ah, God's seen how bad you are and he's going to wipe you out. You'd think he'd be pleased, but he's not. Why is he not pleased about it? Well, it's pretty good if you have a look at the, oh, so that map, sorry, if the map could jump back up, sorry, Sue, the map could jump back up. Now, the reason Jeroboam was able to take back all this territory was that to the north of Israel, so right up the top, were the Syrians. Now, the Syrians had been invading and giving Israel grief and they were having a hard time because of it. And that's why the people cried out and God heard and gave them peace. So the Syrians are coming down and giving them a really rough time. Now, why Israel is able to take back their territory is because the Assyrians, further north and to the east, sorry, I have to do it this way so you get east, um, they have started to attack Syria. Now, the Assyrians is where Nineveh is. So it's not a case of... Assyria's enemies are Syria, our enemies are Syria, therefore your enemies are my enemies, we can be friends. It's not that at all. The Assyrians, so Ninevites, were really, really bad guys. They were legendary for their torture of people, for the way they treat prisoners of war. They had some pretty gruesome ways of dealing with people they didn't like. And it was legendary. So maybe that was one reason Jonah didn't want to take up this call. It could be but it's not. We get told later why. But the, the next thing I want to point out is it could have been Jonah didn't want this call and it was unexpected because of how far away it was. Nineveh was a really long way away and it wasn't a safe trip. They, doing the trade routes would have been really dangerous. Maybe it was that. So far away. Maybe he's getting on in years and he doesn't want to take packed lunch and go on a hike not that I can give you a clue why it's not that because he's willing to get on a boat and go to Tarshish if we could get the next map up please Sue look at the difference between the distance between Nineveh and Tarshish he's ready to go four or five times as far to get away from doing this so it's not the distance he's not feeling his age and thinking I've got weary legs it's something else so it's not the, um, that but what is it well in first two of chapter four right at the end of the book we're actually told why Jonah doesn't want to go this is the crux of it this is why the call is unexpected Jonah it quotes the irony here Jonah quotes God back to himself to justify Jonah's rebellious disobedience how cool is that yep I'll just tell you God why I don't want to obey you verse two in chapter four Jonah says God you are slow to anger you're gracious you're merciful you're faithful you relent from punishing. He did not want those Ninevites to receive God's mercy. 
That's the crux of it. That's why the call was so unexpected. Jonah's mindset was that Israel's God was Israel's God. Nationalistic pride. This God's just for us. He has just experienced God's mercy in the um, relief from the Syrians. They've just received prosperity and blessing. He doesn't want to share it. Everything he knows about God is the reason he does not want his enemies to know God too. That's quite striking, isn't it? Yeah, unexpected. But the idea that God would be merciful to enemies was also unexpected. So we can't give Jonah too hard a time. Their mindset was that Israel's God was for Israel. But I'll just skip back a bit. When... um, When we're told that Jonah knows the character of God and that's why he doesn't want to obey, it's because none of what Jonah thinks about God fits with his ideas. He's got this small-minded idea that God is just for him and that if we're okay, it doesn't matter about the rest of the world. And God was not like that. God's idea was that his covenant people were to be a light for all nations, that all nations were to be blessed through the covenant people, that their, their worship of Yahweh alone, their purity, their holiness was supposed to be an attractive thing to draw others to them, and they weren't doing that. But to push this idea even further, that Jonah doesn't want um, Israel's enemies to have God's mercy, Jonah as the stereotype of all of God's covenant people is really portrayed as being proud and arrogant, selfish, disobedient, rebellious. Jonah would rather die than see his enemies receive God's mercy. This isn't what God's people were supposed to stand for. The irony here is quite strong. And to push this um, home even further, the author holds up the, uh, the responses to God of the sailors and Jonah in this chapter. And God has sent a storm to wake Jonah up. So remember, Jonah's gone to the belly of the... Uh, we get the belly, he goes down. He goes down to Joppa, down into the ship, down into the sea, down into the belly of the whale. He goes down, down, down. He's trying to get further away from God. But here there's this supernatural storm that God sends. The sailors are aware of it. But they're pagan sailors, so we get the word pagan, and that's because they are not Israelites. Now, these sailors are not, I'm trying to think how to describe this in a polite way, they're not staff on a P&O cruise. Is that, yep, they're not. Okay, there is no way they're going to go from Joppa to Tarshish. It's the longest known sea voyage at the time. They are not doing this for the fun of it. They're doing this to make money. There's profit in it. Taking their cargo from this port and then stopping at the other ports and heading to to Tarshish and bringing stuff back, there was great profit in it. But this storm is so severe that they're first of all aware that it's supernatural. Second of all, they're willing to forego their cargo and chuck it overboard. Then we find out that they think that they're going to lose their lives as the ship is about to break up. And they cry out to all their gods. Now, their gods in our Bible are little g-gods. But they believe that their gods are location-based, that they are uh, the god of this town or the god of the harvest or the god of the rain. And so they would appease their gods and sacrifice to their gods. So this is their mentality. And they're aware that this is a supernatural storm. Something weird is going on. Something very unexpected is going on. And they find Jonah asleep. So they go and wake him up. Now, I want to just point out the questions that they ask him. So I think we could get the slide up of verse 8. Thanks, Sue. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? 
What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And if we could get verse 9 up, listen to what he answers. He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Okay, his God just trumped all their gods. His God's the creator of all the things they worship. But the irony, he's trying to run away from the God who made the sea on the sea. You getting it? That's hilarious. Oh, by the way, I know, I know he made everything, but I'm just going to, you know, do this little thing and he won't notice. Well, guess what he did? He did notice. He's the Lord of everything. And the responses to that, we're told, the sailors are terrified, but the man of God is not. Isn't that interesting? These pagan sailors who up until this point have not known Yahweh, they're scared out of their minds. And Jonah's not. The contrast is huge. I love that Jonah can keep a straight face while answering. The God who made the locations, you know. He's bigger than your God, but yeah, it's crazy. So the sailors now respond. So the storm, they've just been told the storm is from God. And they have a response to Yahweh. Their response is to do everything they can to save Jonah's life. Now, you'd think the complete opposite would be expected. I would expect that they would want to chuck him overboard too. They would want to. They've just lost their livelihoods. They're about to lose their ship. They could lose their lives. But they display mercy. How cool is that? These pagan sailors display mercy. They try to row back to shore. But they can't. Storm gets even wilder. And it's only at this point that they're willing to do something drastic about it. And they say, what do we do? And Jonah says, chuck me overboard. Now, they're willing to do everything they can to save a life. And Jonah's willing to do everything he can to lose his life. Because in Jonah's mind, dying means he doesn't have to go to Nineveh and they don't get mercy. But the pagan sailors are willing to risk their lives to save him. The contrasts are huge. The man of God who represents the people of God is willing to die in the sea rather than see God's mercy given to his enemies. What do we do that with this today? This unexpected call that Jonah gets, what do we do with it today? The only thing that's expected in this whole story is the character of God. God hasn't changed. Everything else is flipped upside down, turned around backwards. The only thing that's remained consistent is the character of God. And he's just as merciful to Jonah as he is to Nineveh. He's always wanted all people everywhere to know him. It was always his plan. Jonah didn't want to show God's mercy to, to Israel's enemies. It was inconvenient. It interrupted his plans for his life. It didn't fit with his ideas of who God was, not what God should do or shouldn't do, which sins were forgivable and which sins weren't. Who should receive mercy and who shouldn't? And this book is designed to help us hold up a mirror. Most good comedy is. You laugh until you realise it's about you. If you were asked the questions, who are you, who do you worship, 
What would you answer? Yeah, good on your mic. If you answered, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a disciple of Christ, then that becomes instantly the most definable thing about you. Jonah said, I'm a Hebrew, I worship Yahweh. That was the most definable thing about him. If we're followers of Christ, then that's the most definable thing about us. It trumps everything else about us. God hasn't changed and as followers of him, he still wants us to pick up his unexpected call. He still wants us to hold out the mercy we've received to the people around us. This story points us more than you could ever imagine towards Jesus and his mission to love the world so much that he would give his life for it. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrated his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died so that we as his enemies could receive mercy. Jonah was willing to die so that his enemies couldn't receive mercy. How often do we choose to obey the bits that are convenient, that suit us, that fit in with our ideas of who God is and what he should do? And how often do we buck at the thought that we should do something that's awkward, uncomfortable, inconvenient, doesn't fit with what we think or our plans? It's so easy when you get into a relationship to get familiar with someone. To start to think, I know their response, I can predict what they'd say, I, I know them so well, they'll, they'll do this or they'll think that or they'll want this. Jonah did that with God. Do we? Are we willing to let God be the God of the unexpected call? He's not like us and we can't put him in a box. One of the best questions we could ask ourselves or ask each other is, where do you see God at work today? What's he doing today? Are we open to the unexpected work of the Holy Spirit in us and around us all the time? He's still at work. About six weeks ago, as we were thinking about this series, and I was chatting with God through the day, I happened to pop into an op shop. And I was just telling God, you know, I know that you're the God of the unexpected. I know that you're the God of irony. I get that you've got a sense of humour and that we're created in your image. But, you know, I don't often see it in the world around me, God. What is that? And um, I popped into this op shop. Could I have that last slide up, please? See? And I saw this. And it just felt like an absolute gift from God. And I giggled. Can you see that? You can never have too many plants. It's a fake plant. And it just felt like such a gift. That's hilarious, having a pot that says you can never have too many plants with a fake plant. And it felt like God was just tapping me on the shoulder and going, I'm still the God of the unexpected. I'm at work and I care about you and I have plans for you. And it felt like such a personal gift for me to have a giggle with God. I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't expecting God to show up in that moment. What's God inviting you to do that's unexpected? What part of your life can you see him at work that you never thought would happen? What's he calling you to? Are you at a stage of life where you think you've got God's plans for your life mapped out? Are you open to a change? Are you thinking maybe I'm too old for an internship and yet you really know God's tapping you on the shoulder? 
What is it for you? Is it a career change, a relationship that needs to be restored? Is God asking you to offer unconditional mercy to someone that you really don't want to? Is it you that needs to repent and ask for mercy? What is it that God's doing in your life that is so unexpected it's really hard to get your head around? Because he's the same God and he's at work. I would love to hear. In conversations afterwards, in small groups or life groups, I'd love to hear what God's doing in and around you that's totally unexpected. Is there a people group that you need to go and speak with? Do you need to join our missionary team, our, our partners? What is it that God's tapping you on the shoulder and, and asking you to do today? If you know and you're really avoiding it, tell someone so they can hold you accountable. Can I please get the worship team back up as we wrap up? That'd be great. Thank you. Please don't walk away from here today knowing God's asking you something to, has something for you to do or really feeling like there's, there's something that God wants to put on your heart. and Share it with someone. Don't walk away without it. If God gives you a gift like I walked past the picture of the, the pot, plant, pot plant, say thank you and have a giggle with him. It was unexpected. As we continue this uh, series over the next three weeks of looking at the unexpected story of Jonah, I'm really praying that as you read these words, that you'll allow God's words to read you, that you'll be open to holding up a mirror, to seeing yourself in this story, not because of condemnation, but because God wants us to see him for who he really is and to see the part he wants us to play in his story. The author of Jonah, the storyteller, uses contrast and irony and exaggerated stereotypes all to point out who God is and how we're just not God. We can't control a storm any more than Jonah could. We can't offer mercy that we don't have ourselves, but God can. So many of those details could be distracting, but they don't need to be distracting. We can all worship the God of mercy, the God who is gracious and slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness, relenting from disaster when people repent. Our God is the same today as he was in the 8th century. His character hasn't changed and his desire for all people to know him is still the same. It might have been completely unexpected to Jonah, but it's not to us. Without his unexpected call, we wouldn't be here today. And that's pretty cool. But what will you do with it? Will you be a part of God's mission? Or will you run? Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the author and the storyteller of this book. We thank you for the story of Jonah and, and just how clearly it points out who you are. Father, thank you that when we look at Jonah and we can see a horrible, good-for-nothing person, we know that we were once that. Jesus, you died for us. And we thank you and we praise you. Father, if there are people in this room or people watching who have not yet received your mercy, Father, would you prompt them today to cry out to you to know the goodness of God. Father, as we go through this day and through this week and through this series, would you open our eyes to the unexpected work you have going on around us in our towns, in our workplaces, in our families, in our friendships? Father, would you call us 
Would you invite us? Would you open our eyes to see what that looks like, to partner with you, to be a part of your ongoing mission in this world? Father, help us to jump at the chance, not run from it. Father, even if it's inconvenient, if it doesn't fit with our own ideas or our own plans, would you help us to say, I am a worshipper of Yahweh and I will obey you. Jesus, we praise you for all these things. We love you, Lord. In your mighty and precious name we pray. Amen.